Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships, and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides, and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to thepublicsafetyguru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification, which grants you instant access to our Google Drive, which has all of these resources, including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all-new Discord channel, which allows you to have interaction with me, where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, search for the EMT Tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. After this podcast and your course-related material, you, the EMT student, should be able to understand how to manage trauma-related issues of the head and spine. The EMT student will learn how to recognize life threats associated with these injuries, as well as the need for immediate spinal mobilization and potentially airway and breathing support. In this podcast, we will discuss detailed anatomy and physiology of the nervous system and the pathophysiology, assessment, and management of traumatic brain and spinal cord injuries. We will also talk about traumatic brain injury, aka TBI, including initial mechanism of injury and primary versus secondary injuries. We'll also talk about transport considerations and discuss the potential for deterioration of these patients. As with all of our other podcasts, we're going to identify the knowledge domains that you, the EMT student, should know after this podcast, as well as your lectures at your particular program to make you successful, not only in your program, but for testing at the national registry level. Okay. The EMT should be able to describe the anatomy and physiology of the nervous system, including its divisions into the central nervous system, CNS, and the peripheral nervous system, PNS, and the structures and functions of each. You should be able to explain the functions of both the somatic and autonomic nervous system and be able to list the major bones of the skull and spinal column and their related structures as well as their functions as they relate to the nervous system. You should be able to explain the different types of head injuries, their potential mechanism of injury, and general signs and symptoms of a head injury that the EMT should consider when performing a patient assessment. 
you should also be able to talk about what traumatic brain injury is. Now, in continuing, you should be able to explain the difference between a primary injury and a secondary injury, including giving examples of possible MOIs that may cause each one. You should be able to describe the different types of brain injuries and their corresponding signs and symptoms, including increased in cranial pressure, ICP, concussion, contusion, and injuries caused by medical conditions. You should be able to describe the different types of injuries that may damage the cervical, thoracic, or lumbar spine, including example of possible MIs that may cause each one. You should be able to explain the steps in the patient assessment process for a person who has a suspected head or spine injury, including specific variations that may be required as related to the type of injury. You should be able to list the mechanisms of injury that cause a high index of suspicion for the possibility of a head or spinal injury. You should be able to explain the emergency medical care of a patient with a head injury, including the three general principles designed to protect and maintain the critical functions of the CNS and ways to determine if the patient has a traumatic brain injury. The EMT student should be able to explain the emergency medical care of a patient with a spinal injury, including the implications of not properly caring for patients with injuries of this nature. You should also be able to explain the steps for performing manual inline stabilization and implications for sizing and using a cervical spine immobilization device and key symptoms that contraindicate inline stabilization. The EMT student should also be able to explain the process of preparing patients who have suspected head or spinal injuries for transport, including the use and functions of a long backboard, short backboard, and other short spinal extrication devices to immobilize the patient's cervical and thoracic spine. You should also be able to talk about the different circumstances in which a helmet should be left on or taken off a patient with a possible head or spinal injury. The EMT should be able to list the steps they must follow to remove a helmet, including the alternative method for removing a football helmet. And last, the EMT should be able to discuss age-related variations that are required when providing emergency care to a pediatric patient who has a suspected head or spine injury. Okay, once again, I'll acknowledge that's a lot of stuff, but I think after you listen to this podcast and possibly re-listen to it, you'll definitely have a grasp of this material. Okay, let's get on to your learning. The nervous system is a complex network of nerve cells that enable all parts of the body to function. The nervous system includes the brain, spinal cord, and several billion nerve fibers that carry information to and from all parts of the body. Because the nervous system is so vital, it is well protected. The brain is protected by the skull, the spinal cord is protected by the bony spinal canal, and despite this protection, serious injuries can damage the nervous system. All right, we're going to have a little review on the anatomy and physiology of the nervous system. The nervous system is divided into two anatomic parts, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system includes the brain and spinal cord. The brain controls the body and is the center of consciousness. The brain is divided into three major areas, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the brainstem. The cerebrum controls a wide variety of activities, including most voluntary motor function and conscious thoughts. 
It contains about 75% of the brain's total volume. And it's also divided into two hemispheres with four lobes. Now, the cerebellum. The cerebellum coordinates balance and body movements. The brainstem controls most functions necessary for life, including the cardiac and respiratory systems and nerve function transmissions. The brainstem is also the most protected part of the CNS. Now the spinal cord is mostly made up of fibers that extend from the brain's nerve cells. The spinal cord carries messages between the brain and the body via the gray and white matter of the spinal cord. Gray matter is composed of neural cell bodies and synapses, while white matter consists of fiber pathways. Now there are some protective coverings. The cells of the brain and spinal cord are soft and easily injured. The entire CNS is contained within a protective framework. The thick bony structures of the skull and spinal canal withstand injury very well. These structures are also covered by layers of muscle and skin. Now, the CNS is further protected by the meninges, three distinct layers of tissue that suspend the brain and the spinal cord within the skull and the spinal canal. The outer layer, the dura matter, is a tough, fibrous layer that forms a sac to contain the CNS. The inner two layers, called the arachnoid matter and the pia matter, contain the blood vessels that nourish the brain and spinal cord. Cerebral spinal fluid, CSF, is produced in a chamber inside the brain called the third ventricle. There is approximately 125 to 150 milliliters of CS fluid in the brain at any time. CF fluid primarily acts as a shock absorber. When an injury does penetrate all the protective layers, clear, watery CSF may leak from the nose, the ears, and an open skull fracture. Okay, let's now talk a little bit about the PNS, the peripheral nervous system. There are 31 pairs of spinal nerves. These spinal nerves conduct impulses from the skin and other organs to the spinal cord. They conduct motor impulses from the spinal cord to the muscles. The spinal nerves serving the extremities are arranged in complex networks. We also have 12 pairs of cranial nerves. Cranial nerves transport information directly to or from the brain. They perform special functions in the head and face including sight, smell, taste, hearing, and facial expressions. There are two major types of peripheral nerves, sensory nerves and motor nerves. Sensory nerves carry only one type of information from the body to the brain via the spinal cord. Motor nerves, there's one for each muscle and they carry information from the CNS to the muscles. The connecting nerves are found only in the brain and spinal cord. They connect the sensory and motor nerves with short fibers. They also allow the exchange of simple messages. Now, how does all of this work? The nervous system controls virtually all of the body's activities, including reflex activities, voluntary activities, and involuntary activities. The connecting nerves in the spinal cord form a reflex arc. 
If a sensory nerve in this arc detects an irritating stimulus, it bypasses the brain and sends the message directly to a motor nerve causing a response. Voluntary activities are activities that we consciously perform in which sensory input determines a specific muscular activity. Involuntary activities are the actions that are not under conscious control, such as breathing. Now the somatic, the voluntary nervous system, handles voluntary activities. The brain interprets the sensory information that it receives from the peripheral and cranial nerves and responds by sending signals to the voluntary muscles. The autotomic, involuntary nervous system handles the body functions that occur without conscious effort. They control the functions of many of the body's vital organs. Now this system is divided into two sections, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. When confronted with a threatening situation, the sympathetic nervous system reacts to the stress with a fight or flight response. This response causes the pupils to dilate, smooth muscle in the lungs to dilate, heart rate to increase, and blood pressure to rise. During this time of stress, a hormone called epinephrine, aka adrenaline, is released. This system allows us a to run from danger or to get ready to fight, hence the reason why it's called fight or flight. Now our body does not want to be in this system. It wants to be in the parasympathetic system. The parasympathetic nervous system has the opposite effect of the body causing blood vessels to dilate, slowing the heart rate, and relaxing the muscle sphincters. As the body attempts to maintain homeostasis, as the body attempts to maintain homeostasis, these two divisions of the autotomic nervous system tend to balance each other so that the basic body functions remain stable and effective. All right, let's now talk about the skull. The skull is composed of two groups of bones, the cranium, which is a thick shell above the eyes and ears that protects the brain and the facial bones. The cranium is occupied by 80% of the brain tissue, 10% blood supply, and 10% CSF. The brain connects to the spinal cord through a large opening at the base of the skull called the forum magnum. There are four major bones that make up the cranium. The first is the occiput, which is the most posterior portion the temples or temporal regions, which are the lateral portions on each side of the cranium, the parietal regions between the temporal regions and the occiput, and the frontal region, which is your forehead. Now the face is comprised of 14 bones. They are the maxillae, which is the upper non-movable jaw bone, the zygomas, which are the cheekbones, the mandible, which is the lower movable portion of the jaw, the orbit, aka eye socket, which is made up of two facial bones, and those include the maxilla and the zygoma. It also includes the frontal bone of the cranium, and then the nose, which is mostly consist of flexible cartilage. All right, let's talk now about the spinal column. The spinal column is the body's central supporting structure. There are 33 vertebrae, and they're divided into five sections. You have the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, and coccygeal spine. Injury to the vertebrae can result in paralysis. 
The front part of each of the vertebrae consists of a round, solid block of bone called the vertebral body. The back part forms a bony arch. The series of arches form a tunnel called the spinal canal which encases and protects the spinal cord. The vertebrae are connected by ligaments and separated by cushions called intervertebral discs. The spinal cord is mostly entirely surrounded by muscles. All right, now we're going to start talking about the injuries to the head and spine, and we're going to first talk about head injuries. A head injury is a traumatic insult to the head that may result in injury to soft tissue, bony structures, or the brain. Approximately 4 million people experience head injuries of varying severity in the United States each year. 52,000 deaths occur annually as a result of severe head injury. Head injuries account for more than half of all traumatic deaths. Fatal injuries invariably involve the brain. Be alert to the fact that the patient may have sustained additional trauma such as cervical spine injuries, pelvic injuries, and chest injuries. There are two general types of head injuries, closed head injuries and open head injuries. Closed head injuries are those in which the brain has been injured, but there is no opening into the brain. An open head injury is one in which an opening from the brain to the outside world exists. Obvious skull deformity with a break in the skin is a sign of an open head injury, which is often caused by penetrating trauma. There may be bleeding and exposed brain tissue. Motor vehicle crashes are the most common MOI. More than two-thirds of people involved in motor vehicle crashes experience a head injury. Head injuries also occur commonly in victims of assault, with elderly people that fall, during sports-related incidents, and a variety of incidents involving children. Any head injury is potentially serious if not properly treated. Now, we're going to break down specific injuries. Let's start off with scalp lacerations. Scalp lacerations can be minor to serious. Even small lacerations can quickly lead to significant blood loss. Occasionally, this blood loss may be severe enough to cause hypovolemic shock, particularly in children. Because scalp lacerations are usually the result of direct blows to the head, they are often an indicator of deeper, more serious injuries. Alright, skull fractures. Significant force applied to the head may cause a skull fracture. A skull fracture may be open or closed depending on whether there is overlying laceration of the scalp. Injuries from bullets or other penetrating weapons frequently result in fractures of the skull. Signs of a skull fracture include the patient's head appears deformed, visible cracks in the skull, ecchymosis, aka bruising, that develops under the eyes, these are called raccoon eyes, and ecchymosis that develops behind one ear over the mastoid process, and this is called a battle sign. Now we have different types of skull fractures. Let's first talk about the lineal skull fracture. This is a non-displaced skull fracture. It accounts for approximately 80% of all fractures to the skull. Radiographs are required to diagnose a linear skull fracture because there are often no physical signs such as deformity. If the brain is uninjured and there is no scalp laceration, then linear fractures are not life-threatening. 
We then have depressed skull fractures. Depressed skull fractures are a result of high energy direct trauma to the head with a blunt object. The frontal and parietal bones of the skull are most susceptible. Bony fragments may be driven into the brain resulting in injury. Patients often present with neurological signs such as loss of consciousness. The next type of fracture we have is the basilar skull fracture. And these are associated with high energy trauma but usually occur following diffuse impact to the head, such as from a fall or motor vehicle crash. These injuries generally result from extension of a linear fracture to the base of the skull and can be difficult to diagnose without radiology. Signs of a basilar skull fracture include CSF drainage from the ears, raccoon eyes, and battle signs. And then last, we have open skull fractures. Open fractures of the cranial vault result when severe forces are applied to the head and are often associated with trauma to multiple body systems. Brain tissue may be exposed to the environment, which significantly increases the risk of bacterial infection. There is a high mortality rate associated with open skull fractures. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have been going strong now for a little over 20 minutes, and if you are new to this podcast, I like to take a break every 20 minutes to help you clear your mind and keep the learning process going. So let's do that right now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's get on with this. Traumatic brain injury, otherwise known as TBI, has gained national attention, especially from the NFL football players that have suffered from TBI, as well as our returning veterans from the various different recent wars. The National Head Injury Foundation defines a TBI as a traumatic insult to the brain capable of producing physical, intellectual, emotional, social, and vocational changes. They are the most serious of all head injuries, and they are classified into two broad categories, which are primary direct injury and secondary indirect injury. Primary brain injury results instantaneously from impact to the head. Secondary brain injury increases the severity of primary injury and may be caused by cerebral edema, intracranial hemorrhages, increased intracranial pressure, cerebral ischemia, and infection. Hypoxia and hypotension are the two most common causes of secondary brain injury and will increase death and disability significantly in a patient with head injury. Secondary brain injury may occur a few minutes to several days following the initial head injury. The brain can be injured directly by a penetrating object such as a bullet, knife, or other sharp object or indirectly as a result of external forces exerted on the skull. A coup-counter-coup injury can result from striking a windshield in a car crash. A coup-counter-coup injury is when the passenger's head hits the windshield, the brain continues to move forward until it comes into abrupt stop by striking the inside of the skull, then the head falls back against the headrest and or seat, and the brain slams into the rear of the skull. And this is why it's called coup-counter-coup. Cerebral edemia, aka swelling of the brain, may not develop until several hours following the initial injury. Low blood oxygen levels aggravate cerebral edemia and can be minimized by maintaining high oxygen saturations. 
it is not uncommon for the patient with a head injury to have a convulsion or seizure. All right, now let's talk about that dreaded ICP, aka intracranial pressure. Accumulations of blood within the skull or swelling of the brain can rapidly lead to an increase in intracranial pressure, otherwise known as ICP. Increased ICP squeezes the brain against bony prominences within the cranium. Signs of increased intracranial pressure include chain stokes respirations, ataxia respirations, decreased pulse rate, headache, nausea, vomiting, decreased alertness, bradycardia, sluggish or non-reactive pupils, and decerebrate posturing, as well as increased or widened blood pressure. Cushing's reflex signifies increased ICP, and Cushing's reflex is a triad of increased systolic blood pressure, decreased pulse rate, and irregular respirations. Now, with an incranial hemorrhage, an incranial hemorrhage, or I should say intracranial hemorrhage, bleeding inside the skull also increases the ICP. Bleeding can occur between the skull and dura mater, beneath the dura mater, but outside the brain or within the tissue of the brain itself. Then we have an epidural hematoma. An epidural hematoma is the accumulation of blood between the skull and dura mater nearly always the result of a blow to the head that produces a linear fracture of the thin temporal bone. Arterial bleeding into the epidural space will result in rapidly progressing symptoms. Often, the patient loses consciousness immediately following the injury. This is often followed by a brief period of consciousness, which we call the lucid interval, after which the patient lapses back into unconsciousness. Death will follow very rapidly without surgery to evacuate the hematoma. You probably have heard the term subdural hematoma. Well, a subdural hematoma is the accumulation of blood beneath the dura mater but outside the brain. It usually occurs after falls or injuries involving strong deceleration forces. More common than an epidural hematoma and may or may not be associated with a skull fracture. A subdermal hematoma is associated with venous bleeding, so the signs typically develop more gradually than with an epidural hematoma. The patient often experiences a fluctuating level of consciousness or slurred speech. Any patient with a suspected subdermal hematoma needs to be evaluated by a physician. We then have what we call an intracerebral hematoma, and this involves bleeding within the brain tissue itself. This can occur following a penetrating injury to the head or because of rapid deceleration forces. Many small, deep intracerebral hemorrhages are associated with other brain injuries. Intracerebral hematomas have a high mortality rate even if the hematoma is surgically evacuated. We now have what we call a subarachnoid hemorrhage. This hemorrhage is when bleeding occurs into the subarachnoid space where the CSF circulates. This results in bloody CSF and signs of meningeal irritation. Common causes include trauma or rupture of an aneurysm. Patients usually report a sudden and severe headache. A sudden severe subarachnoid hematoma usually results in the death. Survivors often have permanent neurological impairment. 
All right, now we're going to talk about that dreaded concussion. And the reason why I say dreaded concussion is that you're going to respond to calls where people are going to say they have a concussion. Well, you're about to learn what a concussion actually is. A blow to the head or face may cause concussion of the brain. Concussions are also known as mild TBIs. In general, it is a closed injury with a temporary loss or alteration of part or all of the brain's abilities to function without demonstrable physical damage to the brain. Approximately 90% of patients who sustain a concussion do not experience a loss of consciousness. A patient with a concussion may be confused or have amnesia. Occasionally, the patient may have retrograde amnesia, which means he or she can remember everything but the events leading up to the injury. Inability to remember events after the injury is called aterograde amnesia, or otherwise known as post-traumatic amnesia. Usually, a concussion lasts only a short time. You should ask about symptoms of concussion in any patient who has sustained an injury to the head, including dizziness, weakness, visual changes, nausea, vomiting, ringing in the ears, slurred speech, inability to focus, lack of coordination, delay of motor functions, inappropriate emotional responses, temporary headaches, and or disorientation. You should also assume that a patient with signs or symptoms of a concussion has a more serious injury until proven otherwise. All patients with signs or symptoms of a concussion should be evaluated by a physician. The last head injury we're going to talk about is the contusion. Like any other soft tissue in the body, the brain can sustain a contusion or bruise when the skull is struck. A contusion is far more serious than a concussion. It involves physical injury to the brain and may produce long-lasting and even permanent damage. A patient who has sustained a brain contusion may exhibit any or all of the signs of brain injury. Now we also have other brain injuries. Brain injuries can also arise from medical conditions such as blood clots or hemorrhages. Problems with the blood vessels, high blood pressure, or other problems may cause spontaneous bleeding into the brain affecting the patient's level of consciousness. This is also known as altered mental status. The signs and symptoms of non-traumatic injuries are often the same as those of TBIs, except there is no obvious history of MOI or any external evidence of trauma. Okay, we're now going to move to spine injuries. The cervical, thoracic, and lumbar portions of the spine can be injured in a variety of ways. Compression injuries can result from a fall, regardless of whether the patient landed on his or her feet or experienced a direct blow to the crown of the skull, coccyx, or top of the head. Forces that compress the patient's vertebral body can cause herniation of discs, subsequent compression on the spinal cord and nerve roots, and fragmentation into the spinal canal. Motor vehicle crashes or other types of trauma can overextend, aka hyperflex, the cervical spine and damage the ligaments and joints. Rotation flexion injuries of the spine result from rapid acceleration forces. This is more likely to happen at C1 and C2. Injuries to this area of the spine are considered unstable due to the location and lack of bony and soft tissue support. 
any one of these unnatural motions as well as excessive lateral bending can result in fractures or neurological deficits. When the spine is pulled along its length, hyperextension, it can cause fractures in the spine as well as ligament and muscle injuries. When bones of the spine are altered from traumatic forces, they can fracture or move out of place. When injuries pinch, pull, or penetrate the spinal cord, permanent damage may occur. Common findings include pain and tenderness on palpation. You may feel or observe a deformity of the spine called a step-off where the spinous process may be palpable. If you suspect these type of injuries, take extra precautions when stabilizing the spine. We're now going to move on to patient assessment of these type of injuries. Always suspect a possible head or spinal injury anytime you encounter one of the following MOIs. A motor vehicle collision, including motorcycles, snowmobiles, and all-terrain vehicles. Pedestrian versus motor vehicle collisions. Falls, in which an adult falls greater than 20 feet, and for pediatrics, greater than 10 feet. Blunt trauma. Penetrating trauma to the head, neck, back, or torso. Rapid deceleration injuries. Hangings. Axial loading injuries, which are injuries where load is applied along the vertical or longitudinal axis of the spine. And where would you find this? Well, this would be falling from a height and landing on the feet in an upright position. And last, driving accidents. Okay, moving on to scene size up, specifically scene safety. Evaluate every scene for hazards to your health and the health of your team or bystanders. Be prepared with appropriate standard precautions before you approach the patient in a motor vehicle crash. Gloves, a mask, and eye protection should be the minimum standard precautions that you use. Call for ALS as soon as possible when a serious MOI or complicated presentation is evident. Law enforcement may be needed to control traffic or crowds. Now, under mechanism of injury or nature of illness, look for indicators of the MOI. Consider how the MOI produced the injuries expected. Continue to consider the MOI while assessing a patient. Now, specifically under your primary assessment, focus on identifying and managing life-threatening concerns. Threats to circulation, airway, or breathing are considered life-threatening and must be treated immediately. Life-threatening external hemorrhage must be addressed before airway and breathing concerns. Most head injuries are considered mild and result in no or limited permanent disability. A number of patients with head or spine injuries will not require much intervention other than a thorough assessment and continued observation during transport. In patients who have problems with AVCs or have other conditions for which you decide a rapid transport to the closest appropriate hospital is needed, Rapid immobilization of the spine and quick loading into the ambulance may be indicated. Reduction of on-scene time and recognition of a critical patient increases the patient's chances for survival or a reduction in the amount of irreversible damage. Now let's talk more specifically about spinal immobilization considerations. When assessing a patient, be aware that any unnecessary movement of the patient can cause injury. Assess the patient in the position found. Determine whether or not a cervical collar needs to be applied. Begin by assessing the scene to determine the risk of injury. 
then form a general impression of your patient based on his or her level of consciousness and the chief complaint. If the patient is absolutely clear in his or her thinking and does not have any neurological deficits, spinal pain or tenderness, evidence of intoxication, or other illnesses or injuries that may mask a spinal injury, you may consider not placing the patient in spinal restrictions. Many jurisdictions allow EMTs to screen patients and to refrain from providing spinal restriction on the basis of specific criteria. The backboard is rigid and often places the patient in an anatomically incorrect position for a long period of time. Circulation to areas of the skin may become compromised, leading to complaints of pain, ischemia to the skin, and if left long enough, necrosis. Some patients, especially bariatric patients, could experience respiratory compromise while lying flat. Consider placing padding under the patient to help minimize the risk of injury and to minimize the amount of time a patient is on a long backboard. Apply a cervical collar as soon as you have assessed the airway and breathing and provide necessary treatments. Seat collars help maintain spinal mobilization as you treat the airway and breathing. The best time to apply the cervical collar depends on the patient's injuries and the seriousness of his or her condition. Once the cervical collar is on, do not remove it unless it causes a problem with maintaining the airway. Assessing for signs and symptoms of a head or spinal injury. Well, begin by asking the responsive patient the following questions. What happened? Where does it hurt? Does your neck or back hurt? Can you move your hands and feet? Did you hit your head? Confused or slow speech, repetitive questioning, or amnesia in responsive patients are good indicators of a head injury. In the setting of trauma, assume your patient has a head injury until your assessment proves otherwise. Decreased blood glucose levels can mimic these symptoms. If the patient is found unresponsive, emergency responders, family members, or bystanders may have helpful information. Unresponsive trauma patients should be assumed to have a spinal injury. Patients with a decreased level of consciousness based on your APU scale should be considered to have a spinal injury based on the chief complaint. All right, we're going to move on to airway breathing and circulation considerations. When a spinal injury is suspected, how you open and assess the airway is important. Begin by manually holding the patient's head still while you assess the airway. Use a jaw thrust maneuver to open the airway. If the jaw thrust maneuver is ineffective, it is acceptable to use the head tilt chin lift maneuver as a last resort. An OP airway or NP airway may assist in maintaining the airway. Vomiting may occur in the patient with a head injury. The patient may need to be log rolled to the side and the mouth swept of secretions. Suctioning should be performed immediately to remove smaller amounts of secretions. Irregular breathing, such as chain stokes respirations, may result from increased pressure on the brain because of bleeding or swelling in the cranium. Pre-hospital administration of high-flow oxygen is indicated for patients with head and spinal injuries. A pulse ox value should not fall below 90% and ideally should be 95 or higher. Before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about hyperventilation because depending on your program, they may at this point talk about hyperventilation and the definition of hyperventilation is ventilating too fast or with too much force. Now 
Hyperventilation should be reserved for specific conditions and performed under specific guidelines. It can increase the severity of head injuries. It should be avoided except in cases where signs of herniation have been identified. Always assess airway and breathing prior to moving on to assessment of circulation. A pulse that is too slow in the setting of a head injury can indicate a serious condition in your patient. If the pulse is present and adequate, you can continue to evaluate your patient further. A single episode of hypoperfusion in a patient with a head injury can lead to significant brain damage and even death. If you need to control some bleeding with bandaging, here are some considerations. Be careful not to move the neck if spinal injuries are suspected. Do not apply pressure if a skull fracture is suspected. All right, now let's talk a little bit about transport. Several transport considerations should be kept in mind for patients with head trauma. Patients with impaired airways, open head wounds, or abnormal vital signs, or patients who do not respond to painful stimuli may need to be rapidly extracted from a motor vehicle and transported. Providing the patient with a patent airway and high flow oxygen is paramount. There is a probability of vomiting and seizures, so suction should be readily available. A head trauma patient may deteriorate rapidly and require aeromedical transport. In supine patients, the head should be elevated 30 degrees if possible to help reduce ICP. Remember to maintain immobilization of the spine. The use of lights and siren may increase the patient's level of distress, so just keep that in mind. Patients who are conscious and aware of their inability to move their limbs need to be offered emotional support. All right. History taking. Investigate the chief complaint. Obtain a medical history and be alert for injury-specific signs and symptoms as well as any pertinent negatives. Using OPQRST may provide some background on isolated extremity injuries. Any information you receive will be very valuable if the patient loses consciousness. If the patient is not responsive, attempt to obtain the history from other sources such as friends, family members, medical identification jewelry, and cards in the wallet. Gather as much sample history as you can while preparing for transport. Okay, we have definitely been going strong now for 20 minutes, so we're going to take that much-needed break and talk about the secondary assessment. All right, welcome back, everybody. Secondary assessment. Remember that the ability to walk, move the extremities, or feel sensation, as well as the absence of pain, does not necessarily rule out a spinal cord injury. Instruct the patient to keep still and not to move the head or neck. Now on your physical examination, you should be doing a systematic head to toe full body scan or a systematic assessment that focuses on a certain area or region of the body. Patients with moderate or severe head injuries should receive life-threatening medical or surgical interventions at the closest appropriate trauma hospital. If time allows, perform a secondary assessment while en route. Obtaining a complete set of baseline vital signs is essential. Significant head injuries may cause the pulse to slow and the blood pressure to rise. With neurogenic shock, the blood pressure may drop and the heart rate may increase to compensate. Respirations will become erratic with complications from both head and spine injuries. Hypotension may be present with cervical or high thoracic spine injuries. The heart rate may become slow or fail to increase in response to hypotension. In addition to hands-on assessment, you should use monitoring devices 
to quantify your patient's oxygenation and circulatory status. A pulse ox and ETCO monitoring should be utilized if available. Maintain ETCO between 35 and 40 millimeters per Hg. You may also use non-invasive methods to monitor the blood pressure. N-tidal carbon dioxide, aka ETCO2, is the level of carbon dioxide that is released at the end of an exhaled breath. ETCO2 levels reflect the adequacy with which carbon dioxide, CO2, is carried in the blood back to the lungs and exhaled. That's what ETCO2 is. Now, physical examination considerations. Examine the entire body using DCAP BTLS and examine the head, chest, abdomen, extremities, and back. Check perfusion, motor function, and sensation in all extremities prior to moving the patient. A decrease or altered level of consciousness is the most reliable sign of a head injury. Determine whether there is a decreased movement and or numbness and tingling in the extremities. Look for blood or CS fluid leaking from the ears, nose, or mouth and for bruising around the eyes and behind the ears. Assess pupil size and reaction to light and continue to monitor the pupils. Any change in their reactions over time may indicate progressive brain injury. Do not probe open scalp lacerations with your gloved fingers because this may push bone fragments into the brain. Do not remove an impaled object from an open head injury. Alright, let's now talk about the neurological examination. Perform a baseline assessment using the Glasgow Coma Scale, GCS. Always use simple, easily understood terms when reporting the level of consciousness. If your jurisdiction uses the revised trauma score, RTS, then the findings from the GCS will be used in determining the RTS value. Record levels of consciousness that fluctuate or deteriorate. As you proceed with your assessment, ask, is the patient's speech clear and appropriate? Does the patient answer in a logical manner and is the patient able to make decisions? Is the patient aware of his or her current location? Is the patient alert to person, place, time, and why you are at the scene? Can the patient recall the events leading up to the incident or is there a period of memory lapse? Can the patient recall major current events? Any person with a head injury that has resulted in a change of consciousness, progressive development of signs and symptoms of a concussion, or other causes of concern should be evaluated by a qualified health care provider. Alright, we're going to move on to the examination of the spine. If there is a potential spine injury, examine the spine. Inspect for DCAP BTLS and check the extremities for circulation, motor, or sensory problems. If there is an impairment, note the level. Pain or tenderness when you palpate the spinal area is a warning sign that a spinal injury may exist. Other signs and symptoms include an obvious deformity, numbness, weakness or tingling in the extremities, and soft tissue injuries in the spinal regions. Injuries to the cervical area can limit the ability of the diaphragm to function fully and minimize the ability of the chest wall to fully expand. Additional signs include abdominal excursion, 
an inability to maintain body temperature, a priapism, and a loss of bowel or bladder control. All right, we're now going to talk about the reassessment. Repeat the primary assessment, of course. Reassess vital signs and the chief complaint. Recheck patient interventions. These injuries can suddenly affect the respiratory, circulatory, and nervous systems. The patient's condition should be reassessed at least every five minutes. Now let's talk about those interventions. Multiple interventions may be necessary in patients with head and spinal injuries. If something is not working, try something else. Compare baseline vital signs with repeated vital signs. Changes will often tell you if treatments have been effective. Watch carefully for changes in the pulse, blood pressure, and respirations. Document changes in the level of consciousness. Rapid deterioration of neurological signs following a head injury is a sign of an expanding intracranial hematoma or rapidly progressing brain swelling. You will notice deterioration in a conscious patient's awareness of time, place, and person in that order. You must act quickly to evaluate and treat these patients. If CSF is present, cover the wound with sterile gauze to prevent further contamination, but do not bandage it tightly. Your protocol should include the administration of high flow oxygen and the application of a cervical collar if indicated as part of spinal immobilization. Reassessment should take place as the patient is transported to the appropriate trauma facility. Okay, we're now going to move on to communication and documentation. It is essential to maintain good communication with other providers and give complete and detailed information to the destination facility. Hospitals may better prepare for seriously injured patients with more advanced warning and a description of the most serious problem found during your assessment. Your documentation should include the history you were able to obtain at the scene, your findings during your assessment, treatments you provided, and how the patient responded to those treatments. More seriously injured patients should have documented vital signs every five minutes. More stable patients should have documented vital signs every 15 minutes. Okay, we're now going to talk about the emergency medical care for head injury specific. Three general principles are designed to protect and maintain the critical functions of the CNS. One, establish an adequate airway. If necessary, begin and maintain ventilation and always provide high flow supplemental oxygen. The second one, control bleeding. Control bleeding and provide adequate circulation to maintain cerebral perfusion. Begin CPR if necessary be sure to follow your standard precautions. And last, assess the patient's baseline level of consciousness and continuously monitor it. Now, let's go back to managing the airway. The most important step is establishing and maintaining an adequate airway. If the patient has an airway obstruction, perform the jaw thrust maneuver. Once the airway is open, maintain the head and cervical spine in a neutral in-line position until you have placed a cervical collar and have secured the patient on a backboard. Remove any foreign bodies, secretions, or vomitus from the airway. Make sure a suctioning unit is available. Once you have cleared the airway, check ventilation. Give supplemental oxygen to any patient with suspected head injury, 
particularly anyone who's having trouble breathing. Now regards to circulation. If the heart is not beating, providing airway maintenance, ventilation, and oxygen accomplishes nothing. You must begin CPR if the patient is in cardiac arrest. Active blood loss aggravates hypoxia by reducing the available number of oxygen-carrying red blood cells. Bleeding inside the skull may cause the ICP to rise to life-threatening levels. You can almost always control bleeding from a scalp laceration by applying direct pressure over the wound. If you suspect a skull fracture, do not apply excessive pressure to the open wound. If the dressing becomes soaked, do not remove it. Instead, place a second dressing over the first. Let's talk about shock. Now, shock is usually the result of hypovolemia caused by bleeding from other injuries. Shock will indicate that the situation is critical. If you find that your patient is in shock, transport immediately to a trauma center. Now, earlier in this podcast, we talked about the Cushing Triad. I want to talk a little bit more about that before we move on. Increased blood pressure, hypertension, decreased heart rate, bradycardia, and irregular respirations, change stokes, or biot breathing is what we call the Cushing Triad. If this process is allowed to continue, it is a fatal injury. Performed control hyperventilation of your patient via positive pressure ventilation at a rate of 20 breaths a minute. Follow local protocols and your medical direction in regard to hyperventilation in the presence of herniation. All right, let's now talk about the emergency medical care of spinal injuries. Remember to follow standard precautions. Maintain the patient's airway while keeping the spine in the proper position, assess respirations, and give supplemental oxygen. Managing the airway. Perform the jaw thrust maneuver to open the airway. Do not use the head tilt chin lift maneuver because it extends the neck and may further damage the cervical spine. After you open the airway, consider inserting an OP airway. Have a suctioning unit available and provide supplemental oxygen. Now, immobilization of the cervical spine. Establishing and maintaining the airway is your first priority. Immobilize the head and trunk so that bone fragments do not cause further damage. Even small movements can cause significant injury to the spinal cord. Never force the head into a neutral in-line position. Do not move the head any farther if the patient reports any of the following symptoms. Muscle spasms in the neck, substantial increased pain, numbness, tingling, or weakness in the arms or legs, compromised airway or ventilations. In these situations, stabilize the patient in his or her current position. We're now going to talk about cervical collars. Cervical collars provide preliminary partial support. They should be applied to every patient who has a possible spinal injury based on the MOI, history, or signs and symptoms. Cervical collars do not fully immobilize the cervical spine. Therefore, you must maintain manual support until the patient has been completely secured to a long or short backboard or vacuum mattress. To be effective, a rigid cervical collar must be the correct size for the patient. The cervical collar should rest on the shoulder girdle and provide firm support under both sides of the mandible 
without obstructing the airway or ventilation. Once the patient's head and neck have been manually stabilized, assess the pulse, motor functions, and sensation in all extremities. Then assess the cervical spine area and neck. We're now going to talk about our preparation for transport. Okay, the supine patient. Immobilize a supine patient by securing the patient to a long backboard or vacuum mattress. Another procedure to move a patient from the ground to a backboard is the four-person log roll. You may also slide the patient onto a backboard or vacuum mattress. Okay, by now you're probably asking, what the heck is a vacuum mattress? An alternative to the long backboard is a vacuum mattress. They mold to the specific contours of the patient's body, reducing pressure point tenderness and therefore providing better comfort. They also provide thermal insulation. They are excellent for the elderly or a patient with abnormal curvature of the spine. Now there are some drawbacks. The drawback to this device is the thickness. It requires careful patient movement to maintain spinal immobilization. It cannot be used for patients who weigh more than 350 pounds. They can be used on supine sitting or standing patients. A patient can be moved onto the vacuum mattress with a scoop, stretcher, or log roll. Alright, let's now talk about that sitting patient. Some patients with a possible spinal injury will be in a sitting position, such as after a vehicle crash. Use a short backboard or other short spinal extrication device to restrict movement of the cervical and thoracic spine. Then secure the short backboard to the long backboard. The exception to this rule are situations in which you do not have time to first secure the patient to the short board, including the following situations. You or the patient is in danger. You need to gain immediate access to other patients. The patient's injuries justify urgent removal. In all other cases, immobilize a sitting patient using a commercial immobilization device. All right, now we will have those standing patients. Immobilize the patient to a long backboard before proceeding with assessment. This process requires three EMTs. Begin by establishing manual inline stabilization and applying a cervical collar. Instruct the patient to remain still. Position the board upright directly behind the patient. The EMTs should be positioned with one on either side of the patient and the third directly behind the patient maintaining inline stabilization. The two EMTs at the patient's sides grasp the handholds at shoulder level or slightly above by reaching under the patient's arms. Carefully lower the patient as a unit under the direction of the EMT at the head. The EMT at the head must ensure that the patient's head stays against the board and must carefully rotate his or her hands as the patient is being lowered to maintain inline stabilization. And that is it. Now I'm just kidding, we now need to talk about spinal immobilization devices. During assessment, pain in the spine may be missed because of shock or because the patient's attention is directed to more painful injuries. Because any manipulation of an unstable cervical spine may cause permanent damage to the spinal cord, you must assume the presence of spinal injury in all patients who have sustained head injuries. Use manual inline stabilization or a cervical collar and long backboard. Now let's talk about short backboards. 
The most common short backboards are the vest type device and the rigid short board. These devices are designed to immobilize and restrict movement of the head, neck, and torso. They are used to immobilize non-critical patients who are found in a sitting position and have possible spinal injuries. Now long boards. These devices provide full body spinal immobilization and motion restriction to the head, neck, torso, pelvis, and extremities. Long backboards are used to immobilize patients who are found in any position, sometimes in conjunction with short backboards. All right, we're now going to talk about helmet removal. As you plan your care of a patient wearing a helmet, ask yourself the following questions. Is the patient's airway clear? Is the patient breathing adequately? Can I maintain the airway and assist ventilations if the helmet remains in place? Can the face guard be easily removed to allow access to the airway without removing the helmet? How well does the helmet fit? Can the patient move within the helmet? Can the spine be immobilized in a neutral position with the helmet on? A helmet that fits well prevents the patient's head from moving and should be left on provided. There are no impending airway or breathing problems. It does not interfere with assessment and treatment of airway or ventilation problems. You can properly immobilize the spine. There is a chance that removing it will further injure the patient. Now, remove a helmet if it is a full-faced helmet, it makes assessing or managing airway problems difficult, and removal of a face guard to improve airway access is not possible, it prevents you from properly immobilizing the spine, it allows excessive head movement, and or the patient is in cardiac arrest. Now let's talk about the preferred method. Removing a helmet should always be at least a two-person job. The technique for helmet removal depends on the actual type of helmet worn by the patient. You and your partner should not move at the same time. You should first consult with medical control about your decision to remove a helmet. Now there is an alternative method. The advantage of this method is that it allows the helmet to be removed with the application of less force, thereby reducing the likelihood of motion occurring in the neck. The disadvantage is that it is slightly more time consuming. Steps to the alternative method include remove the chin strap, remove the face mask, cut or unscrew the plastic clips, Pop the jaw pads out of place with a tongue depressor. Place your fingers inside the helmet during removal of the helmet. The person at the side of the patient controls the head by holding the jaw with one hand and the occipiput with the other. Insert padding behind the occipiput to prevent neck extension. The person at the side of the patient's chest is responsible for making sure that the head and neck do not move during removal of the helmet. Remember that small children may require additional padding to maintain the inline neutral position. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this lecture. However, before you leave, I have some exciting news. At our website, thepublicsafetyguru.com, I will be adding a folder under learning tools offering free samples of our members only exclusive content. All you have to do is head on over to the website, register for free, and check out what we have to offer. 
and we will be publishing a monthly newsletter. Remember, for the price of a fast food meal, you gain valuable access to exclusive content to aid you in your learning or passing the NREMT exam. And the best part, as soon as you do that, you can cancel your membership. Last, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and happy EMT. Thank you.